This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 149 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Recently we've partnered with Unreached to bring you a series called Margins to Mike, hearing voices from the global church. And in this session we're hearing from Anna Linden, who's talking about pollution and purity in the age of COVID-19. You can find the full notes on everything that was said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 149. So here is Anna. Hi, my name is Anna, and I was born in America, but Turkey has been the home to my family and me for the last 10 years. We love Turkey, the people most of all, and we think that anyone who has a chance should come visit. Seriously, put it on your bucket list. But the thing is that nobody's traveling right now. We're living in a really strange time. As I record this, the whole world is dealing with the outbreak of coronavirus or COVID-19. Daily life has been flipped on its head. We're all dealing with a form of culture shock as we try to come to terms with a new life in which so many things have changed all at once. And this crisis is causing a lot of us to look at some things differently. About a month ago, I came across a tweet from a Christian New Testament professor named Paul Sloan. It made me laugh. And I want to read it to you. He wrote, you, six weeks ago, those Levitical laws on impurity and contagions are so barbaric. Have a heart. You today. Now, if a person tests positive for corona, he shall remain unclean all the days of his infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling is outside the camp. That made me laugh. Uh, I probably found uh, this funnier than maybe some of you because I've been studying this portion of the Bible recently. In the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Torah, there are different types of laws given by God. Some we might categorize as civic laws, so laws governing how people treat each other. Some are moral laws, like the Ten Commandments. Um, And other laws you could group under the heading ceremonial or ritual laws, codes that outline how to worship God properly and how to maintain right standing with Him. And I just have to add, before we go on, that although a lot of people think that this book is a book of rules, There are actually very few rules, and most of it is a story, which I recommend. (laughs) Among these religious laws, though, you'll find rules defining what makes someone or something unclean, what it takes to regain purity, etc. Um, This is a framework that anthropologists often talk about using the terms purity and pollution. While seeing the world through this lens is new to some of us, particularly if, like me, you're from North America or Europe, there are cultures and regions and religions all around the world where these ideas are common. So these days I think more about purity and cleanliness because Turkish culture is more aware of it. Um, 
The practice of Islam includes ritual washing before prayer, namaz. There's a very old tradition of ritual baths in Judaism that take place in a mikvah. You could even say it's found in the Christian practice of baptism. So I want to spend the rest of this brief video looking at some of these ideas in scripture. But why should you care? <laughs> because frankly, a lot of us find the Old Testament's purity language weird and cringeworthy. It makes us uncomfortable. We Christians might be tempted to sweep the Hebrew Bible aside and say, never mind, that's all in the past now, because now Jesus has come. It doesn't matter. And in one sense, I understand that. Most Christians believe that while God's moral law still guides believers, like thou shall not kill, for example, the civic and ritual laws do not. But if we ignore purity and pollution in the Bible, we're missing out in at least two ways. So the first is that Christians believe God is one and his character doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. If you ignore the Old Testament, you're missing out on a lens that shows us what God's like. The second is if we gloss over the Old Testament laws, we're missing a view into that world, the cultural world of the Bible, where concepts of purity and pollution are under the surface. They're part of the things that go without being said. But regardless, suddenly in this age of coronavirus, the whole world is thinking in these terms. Uh, purity and pollution. I mean, we don't call it that, obviously. We talk about health and infection. We're aware that people around us might be contagious, and no cure or vaccine exists for COVID-19 at this point. Countries are imposing quarantines and restrictive measures to stop the spread from those who are ill to those of us who are healthy. We even have purity tests to determine who's virus-free and who's part of the contagion. So, in some ways, we're not so far removed from the world of the ancient Near East as we might think for all of our medical and technological advances. Okay, so let's take a look in this book at two purity laws from the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament and briefly trace them through the New Testament. Just a note, I'm assuming most of you watching this are followers of Jesus and at least somewhat familiar with the Bible. But if not, I'm really glad you're here and I hope that something I say connects with you. Okay, let's start with a, a topic that might resonate most in a pandemic. Um, varieties and symptoms of skin disease. Lovely. Some Bibles use the translated word leprosy for this category, but it seems to be used for several different kinds of disease. In Leviticus 13 to 14, the Jewish priest acts as sort of a doctor making a diagnosis. If the skin problem is found to be contagious, the person is declared unclean. This is that passage referenced in the tweet. Okay, listen to what it says in Leviticus 13. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> it's okay, there's hope. There's a way back into community. If the ill person recovers, 
first the priest is to go outside the camp to that person and examine them there. If they're no longer ill, the priest first performs an initial cleansing ceremony right there, and then the person comes into the camp, but they stay physically distant outside their tent uh, for a week. The final step happens on the eighth day. The formerly ill person brings offerings of sacrificial animals and food to the tent of meeting, which was the movable temple for the Jews in those days. It was called the tent of meeting because that's where God would meet with his people. The type of animal the person brought depended on their income, but it included at least one lamb. The priest takes a little bit of blood from the animal and some oil from the offering and marks the person's body with it. And from then on, they're fully clean. And they're marked as visibly clean by blood and oil, so everyone knows to receive this person back into community life. Okay, let's look at the other one now. This is another set of purity regulations. Leviticus chapters 12 and 15 talk about the proper way for people to deal with their bodily discharges. <laughs> First, skin infections, now bleeding and other body fluids. I'm, I'm sorry, you're probably getting more than you wanted for this, from this video, but um, stick with me because it's going gonna, it's gonna to get interesting. Okay, scripture sorts, sorts these instructions into three categories. The first category in Leviticus 15 has to do with a body that's not healthy. This is similar uh, to the case of somebody with a disease. Uh, the method for moving from unclean back to clean is a period of waiting and then a sacrifice to re restore that purified state. These codes apply to both men and women. But secondly, the assumption is that some discharges of body fluids are a normal part of life, particularly the ones that have to do with procreation, including menstruation. These do render a person unclean, but a waiting period and, and simple washing are enough to reestablish ritual cleanliness. Frankly, the, the, the fact that these codes apply both to men and women is not what I'd expect from an ancient Near Eastern code that's over 3,000 years old. A third category does apply only to women, though, because it has to do with childbirth. A woman who gives birth is ceremonially unclean for a time. I'm not sure why, but that time period is 40 days for a son and 80 days for a daughter. Leviticus 12.4 says, she must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. When the days of purification are over, she must bring an offering to the tent of meeting, either a lamb and one pigeon or dove, or if she can't afford a lamb, two birds instead. Okay, what, what should we make of this? Let's take a look at these laws. First of all, I notice that while these rules are essentially equal, they apply disproportionately to women. A healthy woman in her childbearing years will be ritually unclean for at least 25% of her, of her life, of the time. This results in a different social and religious impact on women than men. On the other hand, I also noticed that female bodies themselves weren't considered unclean. I don't think this is a God-ordained caste system that God prefers men over women. 
but why, why these rules? Well, maybe part of the reason behind this is the same one that some of my Muslim friends give me for why women don't fast or do ritual prayers during Ramadan while they're on their period. It's not about excluding women, they say. It's a mercy from Allah, who doesn't desire fasting to be a hardship. He desires ease at a time when you are physically weaker. I mean, childbirth was a very dangerous time for women and babies in the ancient world. Many people died. So perhaps the limits are a mercy. Maybe part of the problem is how we hear the word unclean, what we assume it means. It can't mean that there's something wrong with different kinds of animals or a sexual relationship between a husband and wife or healthy female bodies. Because even though these are all examples of things labeled unclean, they're all God's design. He created them at the very beginning and called them good. One thing I know is that one of the most common ways we go wrong when we read scripture is by asking questions of a text it wasn't designed to answer. Sometimes we read it like a recipe or a lab report when it's more like poetry. One of the best questions, uh, and I, I've learned this over time, one of the best questions to ask when you approach the Bible is, what does this tell me about God? In Genesis, if we zoom out for a moment, God created people, men and women, in his own image to reflect him in the world. Ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden, the biggest question is, how can impure, shamed people come close to a pure, holy God? They used to walk and talk with God in the garden. Now getting close is dangerous. Laws about purity and pollution are mostly ways to deal with the fallout of life outside the garden. Leviticus 15.31 says, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. God set up these laws because he wants to be with his people. Leviticus 20.26 says, you're to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. In Genesis, God made man and, and woman in his image to be like him. As the Old Testament continues, God's forming a people group as his own to be holy like him and to be a blessing in the world. Okay, so now let's move on to the New Testament. One of my good friends has a great response when she's asked about a particular uh, point of theology. She says, watch what I do. Actions speak louder than words. Christians believe that Jesus is God. The life that he lived as fully God and fully human is the clearest way God has spoken to us. So if you want to know what God thinks about something, watch what Jesus does. If you look for it, you'll notice that the New Testament is full of instances where Jesus interacts with those who should pollute him. People in situations that require special purifying actions God set up in the Old Testament. Jesus himself said, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what will God do with someone with a skin disease or someone who's bleeding? Here in Matthew 8, there's an account of a man with leprosy. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was clean, cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This man makes a bold, inappropriate move, because if you remember, he's supposed to be socially distancing at this point. How does Jesus respond? He touches him while the man is still ill, and he says, be clean. Instead of carefully preserving his own ritual purity, Jesus keeps moving toward people who should contaminate him. Jesus doesn't just diagnose like an Old Testament priest. Here's the situation, here's what you need to do. When Jesus intervenes, he changes the situation. His touch moves this man from unhealthy to well from isolated and contagious to clean and included. Imagine if doctors could do that. Jesus doesn't get dirty. He makes people clean. We shouldn't be surprised because Jesus did the same thing from birth. There's an amazing scene in Luke 2 that I just can't stop thinking about. It's just this line, it says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They offered a sacrifice, just as, as the law said. Think about that for a moment. Here is young Mary, finished with weeks of quarantine, doing the prescribed rite to become ritually pure again. She's back at the temple, moving back towards the center of worship of the Lord. But the rightful center of the whole world's worship was with her all along. Remember it said in Leviticus that a woman who's given birth must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her, her purification are over. I still don't have a great answer for why God made that stipulation. I'm still studying. But what I know is that all the weeks she was recovering, still bleeding, God lay in her arms. When Mary and Joseph have their temple conversation with the prophet Anna, they were likely in the court of women. Women in those days were not allowed into a closer section of the temple. That was reserved only for Jewish men who are ritually pure. There was a more inner part of the temple that's for ritually pure male priests. And then even another one, which is the Holy of Holies, and all, all of Israel, only one person could go in there, the, great, uh, the high priest, just once a year. That place was, it hosted the embodiment of God's presence with his people. Yet here is Christ, God in the flesh, in the outer court, being exalted over by two women, God with us. So what do we learn about God from looking at purity and pollution in the Bible? Well, first, it points to the holiness and the otherness of God. 
We can't presume to approach God on our terms, trying to make him fit into our morality frameworks or expecting to totally figure him out. He is so much greater. He is exalted and holy, but he delights to come to us. The good news for followers of Jesus is that God is the one who makes the move so that we can know and enjoy him. The beginning of John's gospel says, the word became flesh and lived among us. We've seen his glory. Because of his great mercy and love, God came. And God could have arrived on earth any way he wished, but he chose to be born from the body of a woman, a young woman, ritually unclean, poor, unmarried, member of an oppressed minority, the first person he honored in his incarnate life was Mary. Jesus is like the Old Testament priest who goes outside the camp to the region of the unclean. But instead of just diagnosing the problem, he offers up his own life. He's the lamb, the final sacrifice who makes us clean. God doesn't lower his standards. He fulfills them himself. Those who accept his sacrifice are marked by the Holy Spirit, God's presence with us. We're welcomed into the community of his purified people. There are still things in the Bible that make me cringe. There are still things I don't understand, but I'm convinced Jesus is the answer to all of our why questions. The, the hardest questions you have about suffering, inequality, injustice in the world, find their answer in Jesus. At the very end of this book, in Revelation 3, God says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In a time when so many of us feel isolated and alone, Jesus stands at the door. God says, I'm here. I've come to be with you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder, you can find the full notes on everything that was said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org episode 149. See you next time.